Hello, welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host, Denny Hall, is talking with Don Scott, Director of Sustainability for the National Biodiesel Board. Hi, I'm Denny Hall, host of BioBase Radio and Director of OBIC, the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. Today, Don and I talk about a substitute for diesel fuel made from vegetable oils and animal fat. We'll talk about what biodiesel is, the renewable fuel standard, and the food versus fuel debate. Don, I guess, first off, you better explain to us what biodiesel is. Uh, biodiesel is a substitute for diesel fuel made from vegetable oils and animal fat. And what kinds of volumes are we seeing in the United States right now? So we're approaching about 3 billion gallons of biodiesel uh, on an annual basis in the United States. And you can compare that to about 60 billion gallons of diesel fuel that we use every year. So we're still a small percentage, but we're growing quite a bit. The renewable fuel standard is a kind of an important piece of legislation for biodiesel. Can you explain a little bit about that policy? Yeah, so it, um, in 2007, the renewable fuel standard was changed to specifically include a certain volume of biodiesel or biomass-based diesel. Uh, and yeah, that is key in providing alternatives so that uh, when you go to buy fuel, you don't have only one choice of just getting petroleum, that there is a at least a small percentage of of biodiesel blended in there. And most of the biodiesel sold in the United States is sold in a blend. Uh, it's very common for it to be up to 5% in a blend. Uh, and it's increasingly more common to see higher blends. And uh, those higher blends are labeled on the pump. So up to 20% biodiesel is approved by all of the engine manufacturers in the U.S. today. So you indicated that biodiesel is made from vegetable oils. Uh, what are some of those predominant sources? About half of the biodiesel made in the U.S. today is made from soybean oil, uh, and the other half is almost equal percentages of used cooking oil or animal fats or distiller's corn oil, which is a, it's an edible oil that comes out of, as a byproduct of ethanol production. And then we also make some biodiesel out of canola oil. And then what's the process of converting these kinds of sources into what you call biodiesel? Because you, you can't just burn the vegetable oil in like in that condition. Yeah, so the biodiesel process is actually a pretty simple chemical process. Uh, you take vegetable oil or, or animal fat and mix it with an alcohol in the presence of a catalyst uh, in about a, a 10 to 1 ratio. So about 10% of that mixture would be alcohol. And um, the transesterification process, as it's called, yields then biodiesel and then about a 10% co-product of, of glycerin. And really all that serves to do is to change the viscosity of that vegetable to make it more similar to the diesel fuel that we've been using in our diesel engines. I'm intrigued by the percentages of biodiesel that you have in some blends. What are the drivers that are causing 
companies to use higher percentages of biodiesel? Well, we're seeing a lot more retail stations offer those higher blends, offer blends up to 20%. So the major national chains like uh, Loves and Pilot and Flying J, uh, and even some of the big regional chains like Come and Go and Casey's General Stores that operate here in the Midwest, they're moving up to that 20% blend because they're seeing savings. They're seeing that they can offer biodiesel at a lower cost than petroleum. So they're, they're offering more of those high biodiesel blends. That's awesome. So glad to hear that. How does biodiesel then compare to diesel in terms of cost? That's the question people always have. And it's always difficult because you have, you have the cost of production and you have the cost of distribution and everything in the middle is sometimes masked by the ability for distributors or retailers to add value or add profit onto that. They say oftentimes they can sell biodiesel as a premium product because it has higher lubricity or because it has lower emissions. So when I try to answer that question, I focus on what is the cost of producing biodiesel. We have a lot of installed production capacity in the United States. We've already built more biodiesel production plants than we're using today. So we're maybe getting close to 3 billion gallons of production, but we have over 4 billion gallons of installed production capacity. And we also have lots of feedstocks. So the fact that we've already built the plants and that we have lots of oil that we can turn into biodiesel means that from this point forward, the more biodiesel we produce, the cheaper it's going to get. You mean we can only eat so much salad dressing and so many French fries? Yeah, that's right. So if you if you look at the, the ratio of fat to protein that we need in a human diet and the ratio of fat to protein that's produced by a plant, the those ratios don't match. And it's a it's a convenient, it's actually a gift of stored solar energy. As we're growing food, we get more stored solar energy in those seeds and vegetable oils than we can eat. Yeah, I'm, you hear so much in the way of conversation of food versus fuel. And and I, I think this is an important distinction that our audience needs to be able to uh, articulate for others that, you know, that we have this abundance of energy that's kind of a byproduct of producing what the world really needs. And in this case, protein and having this vegetable oil that can help us with uh, our transportation costs, you know, is, is a really big deal. Yeah, that's right. And that that myth of food versus fuel, it's been around a long time and it's perpetuated because it was kind of a simple argument, right? It's easy to point to certain parts of the world where we have hungry people. And then they say, well, look at all these calories that we're using in biofuels. Wouldn't it be better to take those calories and transfer that so that we were supporting a hungry population? But the truth is you can't sustain a human life if you only have calories from fat and carbohydrates. If we really care about feeding people, if we really care about healthy nutrition, we have to provide protein. And there's just simply no way around it. Every time you try and grow protein, you get fats and carbohydrates that come along with it. And so there are, there's more stored solar energy in those food byproducts than we can possibly eat. When I think about diesel use, I guess I think predominantly of big trucks running down the highway, you know, semis. Are, are they as likely to be using biodiesel as a, you know, someone in an automotive diesel engine? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you're, and you're also right about most of the diesel fuel gets used for heavy-duty transportation. Big trucks, construction equipment, even railroads and, and ships. So that's kind of another reason why diesel is really important, because all the factors that really drive our economy and international trade and construction are powered by diesel. And so that's also where a lot of the biodiesel is used. There are, you know, increasing numbers of light duty light duty diesel vehicles on the road. All the 
uh, vehicle manufacturers in the U.S. are offering more diesels, and they're they're increasing their use of biodiesel. But the the vast majority of it actually is used in over the road trucks and other kinds of heavy duty equipment. So when I see a let's call it a diesel pickup truck accelerating down the road, it's not uncommon to see this big cloud of black smoke coming out of the tailpipe. And and so that makes me think, how does biodiesel compare in the emissions arena? Well, and you should be seeing less of those black clouds. <laughs> uh, starting, starting in 2007, all the on-road diesels had to have diesel particulate filters. And then in 2010, they, they stepped up again, the reductions in particulate matter and, and NOx and other emissions. So all of today's diesels are, are actually really, really clean. Biodiesel reduces those emissions. So if you're, if you're running one of those old pre-2007 trucks that doesn't have a, any emissions controls on it, biodiesel can, will significantly reduce particulate matter, reduce unburned hydrocarbons, uh, and some of the other emissions that are, that are harmful to human health. You know, if you're running 100% biodiesel, you can get almost almost a 50% reduction in particulate matter, almost a 50% reduction in that uh, that black smoke that you would see in one of those old diesels. So when we when we think about your position, director of sustainability, you know, what are some of the aspects of biodiesel that affect people's environmental well-being? Well, a lot of my role comes down to quantifying the environmental benefits. I mean, we also spent quite a bit of time as an organization. Even the National Biodiesel Board is, is an association of farmers that produce bio, biodiesel feedstocks and an association of producers and distributors of biodiesel, so people that make biodiesel. And we spent a lot of time defining what sustainability means to us and also establishing principles um, such as, you know, we want all of our products to reduce greenhouse gases we think that our products will, you know, improve food security. And we also want to protect natural resources and biodiversity. And so those are sort of tenets of our organization. And then we talked a little bit earlier about the renewable fuel standard. And so we see that a lot of our sustainability principles are reflected in that federal policy. You know, the renewable fuel standard requires fuels to meet specific greenhouse gas reduction thresholds. And for biodiesel and advanced biofuels, we have to be at least 50% cleaner than petroleum fuels. And there are also a lot of protections in that standard about preventing deforestation and saying that we're only going to use biofuels that come from existing agricultural land and any imported fuels or imported feedstocks have to certify to all of, all of those protections. And we recognize that you know our impacts on greenhouse gas emissions, our impacts on on the food supply and our impacts on the farming landscape are important. So we spend a lot of time following the science and collecting data and, and, and using data to, to quantify those impacts. And so one of the papers that I've been referring a lot of people to was published by Argonne National Laboratory uh, last December. And they updated our, our life cycle analysis and showed that the biodiesel made from a vegetable oil like soybean oil will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 72% compared to petroleum fuel. And so they're including in that, they're including all of the emissions of fossil fuels that we might use to produce biodiesel. So they're counting the petroleum diesel or petroleum gasoline we would use in, in farm tractors or in trucks that deliver feedstocks to market. 
we would count electricity or natural gas that's used in a biodiesel conversion plant. And so factoring that that all into our life cycle analysis. That study from Argonne also includes a measure of indirect land use change. So in addition to having emissions benefits, we also argue that biodiesel creates economic benefits for farmers in rural communities. And so the economists measure that or, or try to predict that economic benefit. And as that economic benefit encourages farmers to grow more food around the world, there can sometimes be greenhouse gas emissions associated with that. So all of that is quantified in our life cycle analysis as well. So that when, when we say that we have a 72% greenhouse gas reduction, it's actually a very comprehensive study. And we can, we can put a lot of faith and a lot of reliance in that, that quantified environmental benefit. Outstanding. I remember knowing about biodiesel for a long time. You know, many years it's been used. But what was a surprise to me was to, to learn that it was also an advanced biofuel. You know, and could you uh, maybe again, to, just to clarify, articulate the differences between the types of fuels that the renewable fuel standard addresses? Yeah, so the renewable fuel standard requires that to be an advanced biofuel, you have to meet a greenhouse gas emission of at least 50%. And they've also, they also excluded uh, corn ethanol from that. A large reason for that is that corn ethanol has its own pool in the renewable fuel standard, simply known as conventional renewable fuel. The greenhouse gas threshold for conventional renewable fuels is 20% greenhouse gas reduction compared to... uh, compared to petroleum. And for, you know, the first several years of the renewable fuel standard, even today, that conventional renewable fuel made up the biggest volume. So today we're we're using 15 billion gallons of conventional renewable fuel. From this point forward, a lot of the growth in the renewable fuel standard is really targeted at advanced biofuels like like biodiesel. There was also large, large set-asides created for cellulosic ethanol, which was, uh, which was also categorized as an advanced biofuel, but they haven't had the production actually come online at a commercial level the way they expected. So EPA now is at a process of dealing with that. What are they going to do that now that we haven't seen that expansion cellulosic ethanol like they expected? And how do they how will they address the, the volume requirements in the renewable fuel standard going forward? Um, biodiesel is still positioned very well to to grow and expand to meet those advanced biofuel categories, but there is still there is still um, opportunities for new technologies as well. So, as a soybean producer myself, I have to admit that I've watched the price of soybeans fall a little bit here lately, due to some trade implications or trade war kinds of activities. Has biodiesel benefited from that kind of opportunity? Have we seen? Uh, in, any increase in, let me say, profitability of the, the biodiesel production because of lower soybean prices? Um, I don't know if if that's been realized, but I would say you could argue that there's potential there. So if we are if we are not able to export as many soybeans as we normally do, which and typically we export about half of the soybeans we produce, and China is our is our largest customer. If we're not able to export that, there would be an opportunity perhaps to to crush more beans in the U.S., and that would mean more vegetable oil produced in the U.S. that could come to biodiesel. And that would also have an even bigger impact on the livestock industry. If we're crushing more beans in the U.S., that means we have a lot more protein meal to feed livestock. And it's always true, whatever the impact is for, for biodiesel and soybeans, 
it's actually a bigger impact for the livestock industry because every every soybean is 80% protein meal and 20% oil. So if we're if we're crushing more beans, we're increasing the amount of livestock feed four times faster than we're increasing the amount of vegetable oil that we have on hand. What's the situation of like with imported vegetable oils? Uh, and I'm particularly interested in like palm oil. Is that a a a fairly sizable portion of the biodiesel production? No, we don't use any palm oil to produce um, biodiesel in the U.S. And imported palm biodiesel wouldn't qualify for the renewable fuel standard for several reasons. Most likely it wouldn't meet the 50% greenhouse gas threshold and wouldn't may perhaps not meet the requirements for certifying that the fuel or that the feedstock came from existing agricultural land. I can imagine there's a bunch of people out here listening to this podcast and they're going to say, wow, this biodiesel, this is cool stuff. I want to get some of that for my diesel engine. Is there any precautions that someone should make before starting to use biodiesel in their car? If you've got a diesel engine, you're, you're ready to go. In fact, if you've got a diesel engine, you're probably using some biodiesel already. A lot of biodiesel is sold as a blend below a 5% ratio of diesel fuel. And up to 5%, ASTM and the fuel regulators and the engine companies and the fuel distributors really consider that as fungible diesel fuel. And they're generally not even labeled on the pump. Um, if you're really enthusiastic like me, you can go out and look for those those blue stickers on the pumps that are required when you go above the 5% blend. And again, if you've got a diesel vehicle, you're ready to, to burn B20 blends. Uh, all of the U.S. engine manufacturers approve that blend, and you'll just you'll fill up the pump just like regular diesel fuel, and you shouldn't shouldn't have to do any any other work besides that. We at BioBase Radio are huge advocates for BioBase things. You know, whether it be materials or transportation fuels. And Don, it's been great visiting with you today and learning a little bit more about biodiesel and, and where that it fits in our American economy. Uh, this has been really interesting and I appreciate your time. Brad, do you have any other questions or do we have anything else we want to try and cover? Yeah, Don, you talked a little bit about a few different retailers uh, across the U.S. where biodiesel is available. What does that look like globally? What does the availability of biodiesel look like across the planet? We actually see a lot of low biodiesel blends used in, in Europe. Uh, Europe has been doing biodiesel longer than we have, and they have more biodiesel across the board. They don't have the, the B20 blends. All of their biodiesel is, is probably less than 10%, but they have a, a lot more volume spread out across their gallons. South America is rapidly increasing their biodiesel use. I believe Brazil is already currently using a 10% biodiesel in all of their fuel. They are going to be moving to 15% biodiesel um, fairly soon. They're also incorporating biodiesel in their low-carbon fuel standard that they're just starting. And then we're also seeing more from some of the Asian countries, some of the places where palm oil is their domestic crop. They are starting to increase their own you know, domestic use of biodiesel. And again, you know, they're starting with... 10% biodiesel blends and, and moving up. I know that aviation fuel is a different beast than biodiesel, but are you, are you involved at all in any of the efforts to convert vegetable oils or animal fats into aviation fuel? 
So, yes, a few years ago, we expanded our mission to so that the National Biodiesel Board is not representing only biodiesel producers, but we're also representing producers of renewable hydrocarbon diesel. And that renewable hydrocarbon diesel can can be used in aviation fuel. And so we have some members that are producing that product. And I know there is a lot of enthusiasm for getting renewable fuels uh, into the skies. Uh, and the way we see it, that basically any place that you have transportation needs, that liquid fuels are a great way to store energy. And diesel fuel is really great at storing dense amounts of energy for heavy-duty transportation and long-haul trucking and, and ships and barges and rail. So so all of those are, are opportunities to displace fossil carbon, basically. What about implications of biodiesel and water quality, water conservation? What's the kind of the footprint for biodiesel and, and water? Yeah, so, so biodiesel itself is is non-toxic and biodegradable, so it's a, it's a much uh, lower risk if you were to spill biodiesel into the environment. Biodiesel production uh, doesn't require a, a lot of water. I did some number crunching a, a few years ago, and all of the biodiesel companies in all of the United States for a total year you know, use this, about the same amount of water as a, as a handful of golf courses might use to, to water their lawn. So water used to produce biodiesel is pretty minimal. Now, if we expand that and look at the, at the feedstock production, uh, where we're using, you know, rainfall and, and, and even irrigation maybe in some areas to, uh, to produce plants that we use for biodiesel. Biodiesel is still a very good investment of that resource. One way to quantify that was to make a gallon of biodiesel in, in a place like Iowa may require two gallons of water. And we're seeing, increasingly, we're seeing a lot of our biodiesel move to the West Coast to, to satisfy the carbon goals of the low carbon fuel standard in California. And it just so happens that a gallon of biodiesel contains enough energy to desalinize 2,000 gallons of seawater. So if you ever, you know, if water was ever really critical, it turns out really if you have energy, you can, you can find or transport or, or purify drinking water. And so if you can produce a gallon of biodiesel with two, using two gallons of water and use that gallon of biodiesel to produce 2,000 gallons of water, I feel like that's a pretty, pretty wise investment when it comes to water resources. Don, can you talk a little bit more about the economic implications of biodiesel for the United States, et cetera? Yeah, and I'm glad to share that about, about biodiesel specifically and other bio-based products as well. Um, specifically, the biodiesel industry is supporting 64,000 jobs and adding you know, more than $11 billion to the economy. And really, from a fundamental point of view, and one I want to share with people is that a lot of it is about the food supply. We have to grow protein for the food supply. Soybeans happens to be one of the most efficient ways to grow protein. But in the process, soybeans produce more vegetable oil. They produce more fat than we can possibly eat. So we need to find industrial uses for all that vegetable oil. It's not possible to eat it all. And in fact, it's almost mandatory of us. If we are going to feed the world, we have to find an industrial use for that fat in order to make the food production economically viable. In that process... It's really interesting. So biodiesel is a great way to store solar energy. Plants are taking carbon dioxide out of the, out of the atmosphere. They're taking solar energy and they're storing that in, in carbon bonds. And the process of using the sun and carbon dioxide as resources, we're producing food and we're producing fuel, things that are, are really valuable to society. We're essentially turning sunshine into money. 
And that's a very real way uh, to build wealth for the economy. So we're actually putting physical things into the economy that we need. And so that's different than the way the, the Federal Reserve, you know, creates currency out of, out of thin air. And in fact, because farmers are out there turning sunshine into money, that allows the Federal Reserve to create currency to represent that real wealth that farmers have added to the economy. So the more things that we can make out of sunshine, the more wealth we're adding to the economy. And that's the really powerful argument for bio-based products in general. Um, because we're turning, we're turning free sunshine and we're turning carbon dioxide uh, into things that we need. Well, folks, if you didn't catch that, bio-based is a big deal. And, and Don, thanks so much for sharing this important story with us and our listeners today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to BioBase Radio, and thank you to our guest, Don Scott, for being on the show today. BioBase Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. Produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBase Radio is hosted by Denny Hall, produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant the seed with a friend rate and review on iTunes.